Welcome to the first episode of Cotton Specialist Corner for 2022. We've got a new year, same old host. For some reason, we couldn't find somebody better to do this in the last three or four months. So I'm still Seth Bird, Cotton Specialist from Oklahoma State. Today, we're going to start the year off just with an overview of what we saw or learned or experienced last year and an outlook for 2022. As always, I'm joined by a great group of specialists. And we'll get introductions now. So we'll start. Let's start in Texas. Ben. Hi, Ben McKnight here, Cotton Extension Specialist with Texas AgriLife Extension Service. And I'm based here in College Station, Texas. Brian Perilisi here with Mississippi State University Extension Cotton Specialist. This is Tyson Rafer with the University of Tennessee, the Cotton Specialist for the state. Campaign University of Georgia, based in Tifton, cotton specialist for the state of Georgia. Thanks, guys. So, you know, again, going to be kind of a general thing. I want to start with last year. I think everybody had a unique year, especially in different regions and parts of the country. And then, of course, you had the overall market price that kind of drove a lot of things that whole year. So just kind of give us an idea. And we can start with camp there in the east and work our way back west. Give us an idea of maybe your 2021 takeaways, whether it be the good, the bad, the ugly, or just things you learned. Yeah, so last year for us, it was definitely, you know, every year's unique, right? We look back and always say, oh, this year was so unique and all this stuff. But last year was unique for us because we had just unprecedented amount of rainfall, especially in the southwest part of the state. I mean, I put weather stations up on our variety trials and been sifting through that for a while. and. Some of our trials had over 35 inches of rain from planting to harvest. I mean, it was just wild. And then some over in the east part of the state had 18 or 19 inches, which is like pretty good. You know, so we saw a lot of rainfall. I feel like everybody was pretty doom and gloom about the crop there for a long time. But overall, I feel like our average was pretty good for what all transpired last year. And then the quality was pretty good as well. But Kind of looking back at last year and looking forward to the next, one thing I've been telling a lot of folks that are asking me questions right now about, you know, oh, what dry land variety should I plant or whatever, I'm telling them not to base anything on last year because we're probably not going to get that amount of rainfall again. You never want to say never, right? But, you know, looking back and looking forward, you know, that's one thing I'm telling folks. And then two, another big thing that I'm saying right now is to kind of control the things you can, you know, maybe looking at the price right now, looking at December of this year, you know, I think it's around $1.12, maybe $1.13. So things are looking up, it seems like, you know, I feel like it's really easy for everybody to be negative, but, you know, we can still make a lot of the situation that we're in right now. So those are kind of the things I'm thinking currently. Well, I want to agree with you, Camp. Here in Tennessee, 2021 was an absolutely crazy year. It wasn't for rainfall, though. For us, it was cool temperatures. We started out a lot cooler in May than normal and wet. We didn't have really a window. Usually, we're trying to plant first of May, and average plant date for us was closer to the 15th. 
And then we got into a cool kind of cloudy, a little rainy period in June that just really delayed our maturity. We like to see temperatures above 95 degrees in the summer to help mature out our crop. And we didn't get it. And everybody that I visited with in the region, I'm talking about the guys that had spent 30, 40, 50 years putting crops in, said it was the hardest start they ever remembered. And lo and behold, by the end of the year, we ended up with one of the best crops we had ever had. You know, we've been, as a group, you know, each of us has kind of worked a little bit on this unit you know, reevaluation project. And I think 2021 in Tennessee was a good example of, you know, some of the pitfalls of just looking at temperature on maturing out a cotton crop. It was really tickled to see average state yield broke 1050. I don't know exactly where we finished. I think it was around 1060. Just incredible, especially considering, you know, going into August and even into September, I thought we were going to be closer to 850, if not 800. Just really incredible how quickly we were able to mature a late fruit set, a high fruit set, and have really, really good yields and very good fiber quality. So I think we learned a lot on management. I agree with you, Camp. I don't know exactly what we do with it. There's going to be some years where we run short on heat units. I think maybe we learn not to give up. Maybe, you know, push that protection window a little bit further back. Maybe that last effective bloom date needs to be reconsidered based on what we observed in 2021. But it was an absolute anomaly for us. A really odd year, but ended up to be a very, very profitable one for most everyone in the state. In Mississippi, I'd agree with, we had a mixture of Basically, what both of y'all just previously said, you know, when July, I was pretty concerned. I wasn't hardly giving you a quarter for the crop. You know, it just didn't look that good. We were really behind. And it just goes to show, I mean, you can still make a crop when you plant late. But, you know, we were fortunate on the back end, had some pretty favorable weather. We had a great harvest season, so we didn't really lose any yield or fiber quality, you know, later in the season. And we actually exceeded our 2020 yield. I wouldn't say it was a record breaker, but I think we finished 11, 17 or something like that. We had a really good yield considering the start we had. And like you said, Tyson, we fruited high in the canopy, you know, two or three notes higher than we'd like. You know, if we could have set some of those positions, I mean, we probably could have had a, you know, really, really favorable crop year. But, you know, given the conditions, given the start and the market prices, you know, I think that's why we're, you know, we're increasing our acres. And I think we're right now projected about 11% increase. So, you know, like I said, it's looking up. It's always looking up before you plant because that's when the clock starts ticking. So I guess we'll see. Last year in Texas, it was a bit of a curveball. It started off pretty dry. In fact, most of the state was in some form of drought early in the season. And we got enough moisture, at least here in the central and southern part of the state to get the crop planted. And then late April, early May, and on through the months of May and even in June, we had just tremendous rainfall here in the state. That really did a number on the crop as far as maturity in some areas of southern Texas. In a lot of cases, we had fields that were inundated or saturated conditions for quite some time. You know, I heard from growers and particularly the coastal bend, several questions about differences in maturity once the flooded conditions went away. It was almost like they were managing two or three different crops that were in different stages, depending on where they were in that field and how long they sat in flooded conditions. So that was a little bit of a challenge for some folks last year. But about mid to late July, summer really kicked in in Texas, and we had a fantastic August and September, a lot of heat unit accumulation. And I was really surprised with the way that the crop caught up after being 
in those conditions for quite some time. And I think across the state, we had really good yields above average. In some areas, we had fantastic quality. So it was looking you know, like a pretty dismal start to the season. But once summer finally kicked in in July, cotton really turned around. And again, we had some great yields and some good quality. Just two of the things that I took away from last year that were things that I learned were just the resilience of cotton and its ability to tolerate flooded conditions. There were some areas that were underwater for a tremendous amount of time. Fast forward to fall when we were harvesting those fields, it was amazing how well they were able to adapt and turn around once conditions did improve. One of the other things that I learned from last year is the importance of pre-emergence herbicides, not relying on post-emergence programs as much or putting as much pressure on using post-programs because of the rainfall. You could ride around here and you could see you know, several fields that you know didn't have a very aggressive pre-emergence herbicide program, and there was a lot of weed pressure. And because of the rainfall and the conditions, folks couldn't get into those fields and make those applications. And so, you know, a lot of those areas had a lot of weed pressure. So again, that was one of the takeaways from last year, telling growers to utilize those pre-programs in order to get a leg up on that weed pressure. It sounds like that one of the common themes, and I don't know, Camp, how much of your acres were in maybe put in this camp. That was a pun unintended. But it sounds like a lot of the belt last year, at least from the group that's here talking, at some point had pretty dire expectations for the crop last year. And at least with what y'all are saying, by and large, we ended up above average, if not well above average. And I think last year for us in Oklahoma, our per acre yields were above average, but there were some areas of the state that were average and we were tickled to be average just because of how bad it was looking for a long stretch of the year. And it sounds like that a lot of those conditions were the same across the belt. So yeah, Ben, that's a great point on the resiliency of the plant. And I mean, a lot of things that you guys have said really reflect what we were seeing here, especially the fruit and higher on the plant. That's one thing that really concerned me. We always deal with maturity issues. And so very interesting year last year. So moving on to 2022, and man, I'm guessing you probably already started 2022 in some parts of Texas. You know, I think we all are probably aware. And Tyson, sounds like you're coming in from a walkie-talkie or maybe a satellite phone. So I'll make sure that, you know, there's some supply chain issues. And that's the last time I want to use that term this year. So everybody's aware that, you know, seed, crop protection products, fertility is all either short supply, higher price, or a lot of both. So we all know that's going to impact us going into 2022. So just based off not only what you know we've learned from previous seasons and what we know going into this one, but also based off the fact that it's still a pretty strong market, but with all these other input considerations we have, what are your big sort of general recommendations or thoughts or even conversations you've had. I've had a lot of interesting conversations this winter about strategies for 2022. So we'll start being with you. I mean, I'm sure you've got some cotton in the ground already. What are your big thoughts on 2022 as we're getting started? Yes, Jeff, we do have some cotton in the ground in the southern parts of the state, Rio Grande Valley and the coastal bend. Again, it's pretty dry down there and we have insurance deadlines that are looming. I think we have about two weeks to go for the coastal bend, and I've heard a lot of folks that are just you know going to dry plant and see what happens. Going into 2022, and this was one of the big messages I tried to deliver in some of the winter programs that I conducted across the state, 
was, you know, given prices, particularly fertilizer prices, I really stress the importance of soil testing to the growers. You know, you don't know what you already have there unless you test the soil. And there's a lot of good data from research that was conducted here in Texas about 10 years ago, long-term studies looking at residual plant available nitrogen. And one of the things that they looked at was, you know, sampling to a deeper depth. I think the majority of soil samples that are sent in are probably from that zero to six inch depth. And so some of that research indicated that, you know, if you go deeper, say 12, 18 inches, you have a pretty high likelihood of figuring out that you have some plant available nitrogen a little bit deeper in the profile. That cotton plant, under most circumstances, can allocate that nitrogen. And so a lot of conversation with growers I've had has been centered around tightening the belt. And I think that that's one area that, at least in this year, given the price of nitrogen fertilizer, I think that they can end up saving the growers a little bit of money. Of course, that's going to you know require an investment on the front end, but time and time again, it's shown that soil testing does pay for itself and it brings some value to farming operations. In Mississippi, to that point, very similar. We have some issues with nitrogen and nitrogen use efficiency, as well as a lot of nitrogen loss. We have some guys, you know, a lot of times you hesitate on making a decision and then, you know, whenever you pull the trigger and put out some more nitrogen later, you run into those backside issues like defoliation and disease pressure. And that's something we want to avoid. And, you know, at the same time, we're talking about the high price of fertilizers and potentially reducing rates. And it's kind of hard to do that unless you have something to go off of, like you mentioned, Ben, soil tests. So I've been, you know, stressing the importance of soil tests so you can make an educated decision that fits your budget and try to fit your field at the same time. And, you know, you have some guys that know their fields, they know they have problem spots and, you know, they might want to just address those issues. But, you know, the more information you can gather, the better decisions you can make, you know, anywhere from, you know, having a strategy to just reduce the rate a little bit or, you know, a portion. But I've been advocating more on the P&K side to try to put out something because likely these prices are going to stay high for a while and you don't want to dig yourself in a hole to where, you know, you have to put out even more to make a crop in another year or so. Very similar. That's what we're looking at going into 22. Well, Tyson, again, from Tennessee, you know, 21 is one thing I should have mentioned, and I think it's going to be really important for us going into 22. And, you know, I think probably, you know, we've all had experiences with it here in recent years, but we had some legitimate issues with seed quality. We had some areas that struggled. Now, we were fortunate enough to be able, in most of those scenarios, to keep the sand it was fairly skippy and, you know, some areas slid to around two plants per foot emerged. Now, that's considerably lower than we typically seed, but I can tell you uh, just from the calls that I was getting, when we got into September and definitely after harvest, the concerns about that low population and really as a result of seed quality almost completely dissolved. I mean, there were some areas that were hurt, but generally speaking, most were happy. This has been a message, you know, population has been a message that we've tried to deliver here in the region for several years. And, you know, we've got some challenges because of our practices, you know, no-till predominantly, relatively cooler soils. We've started integrating cover crops on some acres and all those things would scream slightly tick up your seeding rate. But I really think we need to be on the low end of the seeding rate as we move into 2022. When I look at input costs, and not that seed cost has increased at the same rate of some of our other inputs here recently, but 
we have a real opportunity in my mind to reduce a lot of the management burdens and input costs that come with increased seeding rates. You know, we have typically, if we're dropping four seed per foot, three and a half seed per foot, and we get those up, we're going to see first fruiting branch kind of climb a little bit. We're going to see a little bit of coliation fight for sunlight in that crop. We're going to have to, you know, manage that crop a little bit more intensively with plant growth regulators. We're going to have to potentially suffer through a little bit of a reduced efficacy of insecticides and have a little more trouble defoliating that crop because we're not going to get the same penetration we would get if we were spaced out a little bit more and we didn't have that two-plant competition. So seeding rate's kind of been the one thing that I've tried to hit hard this winter meeting season on how to reduce that management burden and expenses through the 2022 season. I think it starts with seeding rate and then moves to nitrogen. And, you know, that's something that we can go on and on and on about for hours. But I mean, it starts with seeding rate, bleeds over to nitrogen. And I think those two things, you know, if you're, again, on the left side of that curve, on the still climbing and not quite peaked, I think you're going to be in a good spot moving through 2022. Yeah, I'm talking about a lot of the same things, too. You know, one big thing that I've kind of been thinking to myself over the past few weeks is just control the things that you can control, you know, and make sure that you're putting in the time up front to make sure that these things go right. You know, simple things like if you decide to use Gramoxone instead of Roundup as a burn down, like making sure you're using the right nozzles and increasing that sprayer output. If you decide to use Liberty in season, if you can get a hold of some, do the same thing. If you're, you know, applying fertilizer yourself, make sure that spreader is calibrated. You know, you're putting it where it needs to go and you're not getting these streets throughout the field being inefficient and already spending this amount of money on fertilizer and things like that. I have had some conversations similar to Tyson with seeding rates and many people are talking about reducing their seeding rates around here, but we're already pretty low in terms of our seeding rates, you know, right around. 30,000 per acre, like across the board. So, I mean, we're putting in two seed per foot kind of thing is what we're planting. And so, you know, I don't want to get into this, I guess, but like if we have a seed quality issue or something like that, is this the year you really want to put that to the test, you know, and reduce your seeding rates way below kind of what we need to do. If you get a 70% stand and you put 21,000 seed in the ground, you're already at one plant per foot and kind of lingering there on a replant issue. So is this the year you want to make an unnecessary second pass, you know, and spend the amount of money on diesel and more seed and things like that? For our guys down here, that's kind of the things that I'm talking about, because we're already at a pretty low seeding rate. You know, I don't want to get way too low. You know, it's kind of my concern heading into this year, trying to reduce those input costs. Okay. I mean, I think that's a great topic that we probably should devote its own discussion to. Just to echo what you and Tyson just said, we've done some seeding rate work, and then we also added in, to complicate things, a planting date. And I did this several years ago. Two things really stood out, and of course, I'm in a much shorter season environment, so it may be exaggerated here. I think it affects us everywhere, but you got a lot of flexibility in how much seed you plant to get to the relatively same yield. But if you wait a couple of weeks to do it, or wait a month to do it, it can drastically affect your performance regardless of how, you know, how many seed you're dropping. So, yeah, the seed rate thing is an interesting deal. We're about as low as we can probably go in a lot of our cotton and low as we need to go. It's more of just looking at 
any kind of benefit from going above that. And we don't really see much. I do want to ask one more sort of directed question. I think a lot of y'all mentioned fertility, you know, Brian and Ben, y'all talked about it to a lot more detail about rates and applications. Are y'all getting questions about placement? In other words, broadcast would be the normal. Are you getting questions about going with more of a, either a strip till and applying fertilizer then or doing a banded or side dress? And I say this for us, and we had a nitrogen discussion last year. And, you know, shockingly to nobody, there is a big difference across the belt in timing and rates of how we apply just nitrogen. But are y'all having conversations about how it's applied, the methods and placement? Because that's something that's come up a lot here. I'm not the soil fertility man here in Georgia. That's Dr. Harris. But, you know, whenever I did meetings with him this winter, he talked about it a little bit because it is something that growers are interested in. You know, maybe you can cut your cost a little bit kind of thing. But, you know, he's got some work here that just says, you know, it's not doing much more for you than broadcasting it. And two, you would still have to put out a similar rate, like to make the same yield. So that was kind of his message around the state this time, just saying like, hey, I know some people are thinking about it, but I've done it before and it doesn't really add up, is what his work says. I would take a guess that rainfall has a lot to play with that. For us, that's the big deal. Yeah, I would venture to say, yeah. Yeah, broadcast here and broadcast in other places, it's going to be a huge difference. I've got a little bit of questions about that. A lot of the work we did and a lot of the work Dr. Golden did you know, shows like regardless of source, you know, or application, it wasn't any difference. But the preferred method, we are typically injecting liquid UAN. You know, you get to the northeast part of the state, there's a lot more granular. I mean, there's still some granular applied, you know, throughout the state, but most of it's injecting UAN. So I don't get a whole lot of questions about the method. I get a lot of questions about urease inhibitors and using it in the liquid solution. You know, obviously, some of the guys that are doing granular are set up for that, and they do their corn and all that the same way. And then, you know, a safe rule of thumb is to put a urease inhibitor on there, especially if you're in a dry land environment and you can't control the, like Camp said, control what you can control. Another scenario that we often get ourselves into, because in Mississippi, our soil type will change, you know, from the top end of the field to the bottom. You'll go through two to three different soil types. You might be leaving a split if it's marginally wet on one end of the field. And, you know, those are subjected to law. So, you know, as a rule of thumb, if we're not sealing the top of that injection site, you know, we'll recommend a urease inhibitor in there just to try to minimize losses. And that's the kind of questions I've been getting. Yeah, so if I haven't been getting a whole lot of questions about placement or method, and I think that's just inherent about the diversity in Texas. You know, in this part of the state, in the central and southern part of the state, we do a lot of liquid that's injected. You know, you go to the heavy clay soils in the Blackland Prairie, there's a lot of anhydrous that's used in that part of the state. Again, I don't really get a lot of questions about placement. I'd say probably the majority of questions that I get are about additional products that you can add to fertilizer, particularly the liquids, you know, things like humic acid and some of these other products that have become more prevalent in recent years. And that's something that our program has been looking at in addition to looking at some of those products with some of our soil fertility folks here. Still a lot of work to be done on it. 
We have several trials this year. We're looking at it. We just don't have the data set right now to make any conclusions as to, you know, are these products bringing a whole lot of value to our operation? But that's something that we're continuing to look at. I actually had someone been ask me about, I believe it was humic acid last week. You know, I told them that I thought they probably had a better chance of getting a crop response if they dumped it in their neighbor's ditch. And we've had some big push on that and fulvic acid here recently. This is a little off the topic on placement, but man, I'm really concerned. And we're fortunate here. You know, we're all in it together. Retail's not trying to make any big moves with products like that this year that I've seen. And those that are are having a hard time gaining traction here. You know, we're running bare bones, trying to save wherever we can. Maybe there's some value there. I've never been able to capture it or see it before, but if it is there, this isn't really the year to try to find it. That's been kind of our message. Man, placement for us is one. <laughs> we like 100 to 120-foot cotton now. Dragon hoods is not something we typically do here. And, you know, when we lost that operator for the hoods, we also lost the operator for that knife rig. We're running dry. You know, there's a couple guys that are trying, you know, wide drops or something a little bit more, I'd say, you know, less likely to be lost. But most of our guys are dry. One nice thing that we've noticed here in the past year, and Dr. Larry Steckle kind of led this effort, but we've been running a side dress application of dry fertilizer and using that fertilizer as a carrier for residual herbicide. And that has been a big deal for us, especially in some of these counties that neighbor the Mississippi River, where we're seeing real issues with resistance, even more so now than we've seen in years past. So the dry is not, in my opinion, the best way to get nitrogen out, but you know, it's the method that is most efficient right now. And fortunately, we've got to with that, we've got another option for carrier for a residual herbicide. Guys, I want to break in with a word from our sponsor. This episode of Conspecialist Corner brought to you by humic acid. Humic acid, not just for your neighbor's ditch. Thanks, Tyson. I think we we're going to lose that sponsor. You're welcome. Oh, coming out swinging. First episode of 2022. Any parting word, anything we didn't talk about going into 2022 that you'd like to touch on? Did you mention supply chain issues? I think we checked that box. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure. The only thing on my bingo card anymore. Any more marginal products that you want to take a swing at while we're still recording here? Be great. Go ahead and cross off some more sponsor opportunities off our list. Nope. Okay. Thanks, guys. Well, I appreciate y'all's time. Good conversation. 2022 is certainly going to be one of the more interesting years, at least right now, as we stand in April going into it, that I can remember. We do have a lot of more topical conversations or discussions that we've got coming up for Cotton Specialist Corner. So we're looking forward to those, maybe some multi-part conversations to really act like we're a real podcast. So we'll see how those go. I want to thank Cotton Incorporated for funding and sponsoring Cotton Specialist Corner. You can find us on Grow Plant Health Exchange, the Focus on Cotton page there. I want to thank Keith Edmiston for the music. And thank you for listening.